0: Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Isabel Zalanzi, geologist at Canadian Natural Resources Limited. We'll be talking about Isabel, Amy Guglick, John Pell-Zonnebeld, Tiffany Player, and Thomas Moslow's scientific article titled, Sedimentology, Stratigraphy, and Geochemistry of Sulphur Mountain, Montney Equivalent, formation outcrop in south-central Rocky Mountains, Alberta, Canada. Some highlights include discussing lithophases in two outcrops and their associated geochemistry. We're rocking out today with Isabel Zelanzi. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Hi Isabel and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hi Maureen, thanks for having me.
0: So in your study, you analyzed the Sulfur Mountain formation outcrops, which is a Montney equivalent, and the Montney is a conventional and unconventional oil and gas liquids-rich and dry gas reservoir that has been developed with horizontal wells since the early 2000s. Is there outcrop work done previously on the Montney that you built on, or was this one of the first studies?
1: So two of my co-authors, J.P. Zonneveld and Thomas Moslow, had done some work on these outcrops before and had actually run. Uh, courses on the Sulphur Mountain Formation. So I had worked with both of them and they introduced me to the outcrops and went out there to look at it together. So they really paved a foundation for the start of this work. There was also previous work done by Archer and Zonneveld in 2009, and they looked at outcrop in the Wapiti area. So there were some differences, but it was mainly between these uh, outcrop courses and that paper along with other research that has been done on the Montney that I used as kind of background work to start doing the research on the Sulphur Mountain Formation.
0: That sounds like a really great starting point. Always nice to have a bit of material to build on. So the morning consists of the Vega and Feraso members. So how Mm -hmm. do you relate these members to the Sulphur Mountain outcrops in the work that you did?
1: So in the areas that I looked at, we actually weren't able to differentiate between the Vega and Frozo member. And the reason for that is because where that contact does exist, it is usually conformable or gradational. And where we were looking, there seemed to be an overall trend where we became less clay rich upwards, but there wasn't really a contact that we could say where the Frozo and where the Vega member contacts were. And also in other areas, sometimes there's a McKenzie Dolomite lentil that is formed between the Vega and Frozo members, so you could differentiate it. But just in our area, we weren't able to do that as it was not clear or it may have been covered.
0: Yeah, and I like how you referred to it as the Vega Frozo, kind of hyphenated as one word together to really highlight the fact that there was no surface between them and you were treating them as one member. So that's something good to keep in mind as we go through the rest of the study.
1: That was something that was pre-established by past researchers where they identified different areas where you could differentiate it and not. And that came from some of Zonneveld's work in 2010.
0: So speaking of areas, you looked at outcrops, four different outcrops. Where were these located?
1: There were two outcrops along the Mount Norquay Scenic Drive and two outcrops in the Rendell Rock Quarry in Harvey Heights. And so the intent of choosing these outcrops is to have two outcrops that were very close together and then having a larger distance between them so you can compare how trends vary over short distance compared to long distance. And so along the Mount Norquay Scenic Drive the two outcrops are along road cuts so they have really excellent exposure. And then in Harvey Heights the two outcrops are in creek beds so that causes additional erosion and weathering of it so the exposure was a little less good at the quarry.
0: Yeah it's interesting you mentioned the weathering on the outcrops because later on you did mention there were some methods you used to remove the weathering so you know you probably had to do a bit more of that at the Harvey Heights than you did at the quarry outcrop, hey?
1: Yeah so when we were looking at the outcrop We were only actually able to take samples from the quarry because along the Mount Norquay Scenic Drive, uh, it's in the Banff National Park and we did not have a permit to sample over there. So uh, the only geochemical analysis we did was with the handheld gamma spectrometer. But at the quarry, you're absolutely right that it did require a lot more work to get that fresh face sample, uh, especially with uh, ensuring that it was removed and in some of the more competent beds, it, required a sledgehammer. So it was quite a bit of work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you gathered 251 of these samples. I can just imagine using a sledgehammer, how much work that would have been. And, you know, you talked about some of the methods just now that you had the handheld gamma ray spectrometer. Do you want to walk us through a couple of the different methodologies you use to test all these samples?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So at both the quarry and at the Mount Norquay Scenic Drive, we used the handheld gamma spectrometer every 50 centimeters to take a recording. So that gave us potassium, thorium, and lithium as well as total gamma. And then at the quarry, we, for the samples that we took every 50 centimeters, we also did XRF along each of them. So we had research assistants at ran that analysis and so what they did was they took a clean face and then exposed it to the handheld xrf which gives elemental data and then there was a select few samples that we ran icpms on and so that gives you elemental data as well but it is quite a bit higher resolution so this was used to correct the xrf data that was just a method using a cross plot and a line of best fit between the data and then we also took some samples for thin section and XRD. So the XRD gives mineralogical data. And then the thin sections enable you to look at the minerals, the contacts, the fabric. And also in the montney it becomes important to try and evaluate detrital grains versus diagenetic cements. And thin sections were a really good way to use that in addition to all the other data.
0: It's lots of different methodologies and lots of data that you gathered here. And so from this, you were able to discern four different lithophases. Let's go through each of them individually because it gives a bit of framework for what we'll talk about later with the elemental results that you had. So lithophases one, you mentioned was hummocky cross stratified, very fine grained sandstone. So how did you describe and interpret this lithophases?
1: So this lithophases was very competent relative to the other facies and part of the reason for that is when it was deposited in the shore face it had higher energy and lower clays compared to most of the other facies so that resulted in hummocks having more porosity and permeability so you had more diagenetic alteration so when you look at the outcrops these really stand out because they are less eroded compared to most of the other facies. When you look at the actual strata and individual beds, which range from five to 10 centimeters, sometimes they were a little bit more, but that was the general average. Uh, You could see these bed forms quite clearly. And then along the base of them, they were often scour surfaces. And when you look along the plane, you can sometimes see tool marks that are fairly linear. And so this would have just been transporting more competent material along the base of the shore face during that time.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting you say that there, that it's um, kind of rare to see anything other than the hummocky cross stratification in it. And you did mention earlier that the paleogeography and paleoclimate were really key to explaining some of these sedimentary features that you saw in outcrop. So what would you say the area was like in Triassic during the time of the deposition?
1: Yeah, so if we start back at the Permian-Triassic Boundary. So that was a major extinction that occurred around 252 million years ago. So above that major unconformity, you have transgressive deposits along the base of it. So you see this relative sea level change. But along the western margin of Pangaea is where these outcrops were laid at that time. And they were mid paleo latitude and there was a low angle clastic slope and it was westward thickening and deepening towards the west as well. And so during this time the environment was quite arid and that is known from palynology research that was done by other researchers. We also don't see clays very commonly or feldspars. And during this time with this arid environment, you would have had some aeolian transport. You Could have also had ephemeral channels and episodic flooding within your into your basin, and the monsoons that would have taken place would have been quite a bit more significant than they are in present day.
0: It's interesting to think of it as dry monsoonal, very different than what we're looking at today.
1: Yeah, it's definitely episodic deposits that we sometimes see, and just to touch a little bit about. Uh, the tectonism that may have occurred during that time. You had the supercontinent Pangaea and it began to break up and you also had terrains towards the west, like northwest, and so it is possible that you could have had collisions as early as the low, lower Triassic and that is some of the work that's ongoing by other researchers, but this may have created relative sea level changes that we can see sometimes pronounced in the lithofacies, where we see the formation of parasequences. So tectonism may have been present during this time as well and in addition to altering sea level it may have also changed just the stability so as we talk further in this podcast we're going to touch on another lithofacies where we see massive deposits and one of the possibilities for how it can be created is actually from tectonic events or reactivation of structures
0: yeah, so speaking of tectonic events and the mass of other faces there, you know, lithophases two, you mentioned was a massive sandstone. So what did you see for the sedimentary structures and fossils and traces and thickness? What depositional environment would you describe for this?
1: So the massive sandstones were typically quite variable. The general thickness was about three to fifteen meters, and on either contact, especially the basal one, was generally sharp. So you can have massive deposits in a variety of different settings. But what's more important is that you can have it either through some sort of instability, which causes soft sediment deformation. So you could have had a plastic deposit that wasn't yet consolidated and lithified. And relating back to the different tectonic events, if you were to disrupt that, you could potentially distort the deposits, and we see that in soft sediment deformation. We also saw that in the form of flow rolls. We can also see in this sometimes lithoclasts that seem to have undergone soft sediment deformation themselves. So these may have been ripped up and then combined with this other deposit and then subsequently had soft sediment deformation occur. Another thing to consider is in the montney, we have quite restricted sediment size, so typically it is around fine to coarse silt. You also get some very fine sand. But if you do not have grain size variability, when you look at a deposit, it can appear to be massive, and it's just because you don't have the grain size variability to see sedimentary structures.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, the massive comment as well, because in the Montney, you don't always think of it as a sandstone. To, so to see a sandstone where all the grains are very similar size and you know all the evidence of the soft sediment deformation and different transportation through slumping, it might be a bit of a surprise, right? How prevalent did you see this in the outcrop?
1: So it varied quite a bit from outcrop to outcrop. So in the quarry, there was only one outcrop that showed those flow rolls, which was in one of the figures where the relief on this was quite large. So these flow rolls were about 75 centimeters tall, and that only occurred in one of the outcrops. And also at the core, we saw those lithoclasts that also underwent soft sediment deformation. This is not seen at the Mount Norquay Scenic Drive outcrops. And something else that was really unique and intriguing at the corial crops is there were these microbial mats that were sometimes in this soft sediment deformation lithofacies, And they kind of created these pancake shapes where you had a microbial mat on either side and kind of depending on soft sediment deformation was contorted as well. And so it may have been transported into that environment and you had preservation of the kerogen associated with it. Another thing to note is at the Mount Norquay Scenic Drive outcrop, there was a sedimentary dike in one of the outcrops. And so how this looked like is both the basal and the upper contacts from it were cross-cut and it appeared that you may have had some sort of seismic event, or you could have had rapid deposition and underneath it having more of an unconsolidated material. And then if you exceed the pore pressure, then you can have a sedimentary dike, which injects upwards and could possibly cross-cut these different laminae that were both above and below it.
0: That sounds really neat, seeing the kerogen associated with the microbial mats and dikes. So there's more going on in that facies than you would think from just hearing that it's a massive sandstone, right? If we were to move on to the next lithophases, number three, you described as interlaminated sandstone and siltstone with planar or hummocky cross stratification. So how would you further elaborate on this facies?
1: So this is a fairly common facies and When you look at an outcrop, it starts to become really difficult to differentiate where you're seeing this planar laminate and hummocky cross stratification. And so they seem to be quite interbedded with one another. And the interpretation for this was that the deposition was in the offshore transition, and you had sea level fluctuation, and you also had tempestites. When you see the hummocky cross stratification that's associated with a tempestite or storm type event, that is why you can have these two different facies. So interlaminate it with one another because you can have storm events in the offshore transition and then you can also have fair weather conditions. And so in this lithofacies, you can see different biogenic structures and fossils. And this is often related to the stratigraphic depth. So as you get to stratigraphically younger deposits and further away from that Permian-Triassic extinction, you start to see more aminoid impressions. And you can also see impressions of cleara. And um, rarely you see some gastropods as well. Yeah, that sounds
0: like a really neat facies to see an outcrop as well. So the final one that you identified was lithophases 4, a planar, very fine siltstone. What did you see in this lithophases? And what depositional environment did you associate it with?
1: So this lithopases was most common in the younger deposits. It was typically quite recessive, making it more difficult to evaluate, especially at the quarry outcrop. But what you can notice immediately when you're at the outcrop is that it's quite a bit darker in color, and it's a little bit more recessive, and you don't get any thick beds. So the individual sedimentary structures are typical planar laminate, But then you could see general packages as well. And this is deposited in offshore, and it is interpreted that we're in the proximal offshore because we're on a low angle ramp. Previous work that was done is identified that these deposits typically do not reach the distal offshore, but rather reside in uh, the proximal offshore, which makes sense with the facies associations and how this is a relatively rare facies. And it's also commonly associated with the previous facies we were just talking about in the offshore transition.
0: Yeah, you had a really nice diagram that showed the proximal offshore, where the fair weather wave base was, and the storm weather wave base, and the lower shore face. And you really used this to demonstrate how you thought that the relationship between the lithophases was related to sea level changes because of this, there were two key flooding surfaces that you were able to identify and correlate in the outcrops. Did you find the lithophases in a common stacking pattern above and below this, these flooding surfaces? Or what was the relationship that you saw between all of it?
1: So when I was evaluating the four different outcrops, it was really important to find a data that I could hang them on and to try and correlate them. Only one of the outcrops had the Permian-Triassic boundary, which would have been a really good contact to work off of because of that. It's a global unconformity. But because we didn't have that and because we only had geochemistry done on the quarry outcrops, that really limited us to using the lithofacies. When I was trying to pick a surface, I looked for the most recessive and correlatable change that we could see. In that maximum flooding surface that was used as a datum, on the Norquay outcrops, we can see a rapid change to finer deposits, which would have been associated with a deepening of your sea level to that proximal offshore. And then within the quarry, it was actually recessive and we weren't able to see it. But we can use how recessive a unit is to imply that it was most likely from this finer deposit that is also more clay rich.
0: Yeah, it's a good point that you made there. You couldn't always use the geochemistry um, because it was only done on certain samples. So, you know, when you have more data and are able to use it, it's great. But if you don't have that extra data, using just the lithophases to correlate is a great way to go. So if we dig into the geochemistry a bit further, you did single element work. And from this identified two geochemical packages. In group one, there was aluminum, silicon and titanium, iron, iron. And then in group two, there was magnesium, manganese, and calcite. What relationship did you find within each group, as well as how did the two different groups relate to each other?
1: So within each of the groups, the elements that you had listed had a positive relationship with one another. But when you look at group one compared to group two, it becomes clear that they're negatively related. The reason behind that is in the sulfur mountain formation, if you have more detrital grains relative to your cement, you're going to see an increase in the iron, titanium, and silicon. Whereas if you actually have more carbonate cement, you're going to see an increase in your magnesium, calcium, and manganese. When I was talking about it before and referring to the competency of the beds, That is generally related to the amount of diagenetic cements that you see. In the outcrop, it's either calcite or dolomite, but more commonly, we see it as dolomite. Because of these relationships with increasing carbonate cement, you have a relative decrease in your detrital grains. And that's why you see that inverse relationship between group one and group two.
0: Speaking of the relationships between them, you had some really nice chemostratigraphy plots for each outcrop. And on the logs, you'd identify the amount of each single element or a ratio of them. And then you further subdivided this into some packages about a couple meters thick and assigned them some letters. And I did notice if you look between the different diagrams, sometimes the letters are seen in multiple outcrops and sometimes they're only present in one outcrop. Is there a geological reason that this is occurring or what was the significance of seeing that?
1: So the chemo that you're talking about is for the two quarry outcrops. The reason why we have letters in one outcrop and not another is due to cover. It's challenging to make the assumption that those packages are there when we don't have any rock to look at. But the significance comes in that that may have potentially been a more recessive surface. But we're in a creek bed and there's quite a bit of debris in it. From flooding, there's boulders, there's also fallen trees. I think it's more likely than not that it can be related to the creek geometry as well. And where you can have different accumulations of debris and that covers the outcrop and so we're unable to evaluate it.
0: I like that. It's such an easy, simple explanation. I thought there was going to be some complicated sto- <laughs> story here, but it's just a matter of what shape the outcrop was in. One of those, you had to be there to see it kind of analysis, right? Yes. So if you take a look at everything you discovered in Sulphur Mountain and kind of relate it back to the Montney, you know, some of the kind of key takeaways that I really got from your paper was looking at where the sea level is rising and falling to differentiate the lithophases, as well as, you know, some different sampling methods that could you could use to further subdivide and differentiate them. Is there anything else, some key findings that you would then further
1: apply to the Montney? I think with the Montney, it's really important to first think about deposition and then apply diagenetic interpretations as well. So when we notice deposits that are more proximal and have less clay. Depositionally, that would be a really good reservoir facies. But when you take into account diagenesis, these units are more prone to diagenetic alteration and poor occluding cements. So I think by looking at outcrops and because of the weathering that is present, it makes these differences between the units that are more clay rich and those that have pore spaces occluded by cement more clear just by the change in competence versus recessive between the two. So I think that is very useful to understand when you're evaluating the motney and also using geochemical techniques to evaluate it. Elemental data in com- combination with mineralogic data I think is a really good approach. So when we get XRF it's less expensive than getting XRD, but when you understand the chemistry of these minerals, you can start to use the elemental data to make inferences and thin sections have also proven to be very useful for understanding the grains and the contacts as well as the pore space and the cements. I think another thing that has been really useful with outcrop and considering both deposition and diagenesis and relating it to Monty exploration is to think about how your fractures are going to interact with these different units so how is it going to interact if you have a more ductile unit that's more clay rich what about having soft sediment deformation that changes um, and makes it more anisotropic or more isotropic and also these cemented beds and how it may affect your fracture propagation so i think looking at the outcrop holistically and really integrating it with the subsurface data helped to create a picture of what's going on in the morning.
0: I like that the whole big picture take that you have on it there when you look at the outcrop you can visualize the fracks and what you're drilling and how the rocks integrate to that and it's so important so thank you so much for sharing all of your research with us today.
1: Thank you very much Maureen. Stone's Notes is brought
0: to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.